You are listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. You put the gun down. I'm not talking to you like this. That's your choice. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is SequelCast. They are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. This time around, we are continuing a impossible mission, some might say, looking at some of the early Mission Impossible films. And this time around, we were doing Mission Impossible 3, directed by J.J. Abrams, written by Alex Kurtzman, Roberto Orchi, and J.J. Abrams. This came out in 2006. So, uh, whopping six years after MI2. Um, I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergy. With me is Thrasher. Philip Seymour Hoffman is in this Maggie Q. Is there two? Who is this? It's Billy Crudup. Oh, yes, sure. <laughs> Billy Crudup is one of those I think should have had a better shake. He does good work, but um, <laughs> whatever reason. Uh, and Alex. Quit your crying and stop your pouting. It's time for a third Mission Impossible outing. IMF's going to do what Ethan does best, wearing funny masks and going on jets. That's uh, that's pretty cool. Even, <laughs> even the famous rapper Peanut Butter Eminem would enjoy that one. So, oh yeah, uh, mm, oh baby, yeah. No, I mean, 2006 is a pretty uh, that summer is a pretty loaded year for me because that's when I was kicked out of my mom's house and moved to Portland, Oregon. So, nice. um, I uh, which I needed in retrospect. And anyhow, I am uh, I did not see this in the theater at the time. I did see it. Uh, on Netflix, where I had to request the Blu-ray by mail and uh, and all that. And uh, when when I saw Mission Impossible Three, uh, I think a few things struck me about it originally, and all of a sudden we were watching. I think they're definitely trying to be a little more grounded, sort and of. A, a little bit, uh, sort of. But I mean, it's just sort of compared to the first one where he's doing extreme sports. Free well, it's basing. not as stylistic. Yeah, maybe stylistic. Maybe that's the better word for it. Oh, I think we'll it's get... like making, because I think like what changed from the first two films to this one is that you had like Christopher Nolan coming out. You had the Bond got good again with Casino Royale. Um, the yeah. Bourne films. Bourne, yes. so, like, so you needed to make like, you know, high stakes action seem plausible. And right. like I think that's where it comes in. So it's like a little more gritty. It's a little more serious. And I think, therefore, it makes it seem a little more not realistic. But, you know, it takes those extremes and, and points them in a different direction. It's less fantastical seeming, but more intense. That's a better way to put it. Did either of you see this in theaters or? No, I missed it. I, no. this, this came out when I was way too cool for school. Mm, you wouldn't be I don't think I was watching anything in the theaters. I was probably just renting movies from the library and being a dork. Sure. 
this came out in in my own personal dark times, and I I had neither the time nor the money to see this film. And and even then, after seeing the second Mission Impossible, I I didn't feel that I needed to see a third. So is this when, uh, not to get too specific, but you were working for a major video game retailer? No, this is actually uh, this is uh, before then. This would have been. This would have been towards the tail end of when I was managing a pizza place. Oh, I visited you when you did that once, and you were miserable. Yeah. Oh no, it was terrible. That uh, that yes. job nearly killed me. I've and, I've been in and, a few and, jobs I, and I wish I was joking, yeah. but but no, I came close to death. Right? No, I I've I've had a few jobs like that um, as well. Whether it's you know physical or mentally, it it just drives you a bit insane. And it's yeah, that's not a fun place. To be in, on the other hand, you have to pay the rent. It's a, But yes, no, that's not a fun situation. And I mean, also where you were in Savannah, Georgia, there, I, I mean, I didn't live there quite at that time, but is it was it still the case where there wasn't really a good theater downtown? You had to drive like 30 minutes out to, uh, to get to the theater? Pretty much. There were those two theaters like behind the, the two first run theaters were in that area behind the mall and they were right yeah, next to each yeah. other. <laughs> right. Right. And, um, fun time. So yeah, mission impossible, Mr. Tom Cruise. And I looking at, at when these came out, the gaps between them, I think is pretty weird. Like, yeah, I don't think you'd see that as much now where it's four years between the first two and then six years between two and three. Yeah, I can only assume that, like, I, I feel like, if, at least with, with this initial run of films, I feel like the sequels are only happening because someone's desperate. Like, th- that could be the only reason why there's uh, why there's such a long gap. Either that or it's someone's passion project, and it takes that long to get other people signed on. I, this um This is, like, one of the reasons why this franchise intrigues me so much, because, like the fan service around it like the fans around it can't be that intense like i can't imagine too many people are like fan, fan, like hardcore yeah. fans of the show are like we need a mission impossible movie you know it's not like a star wars or star trek kind of thing but there is like a, this like financial dedication to it these are like routinely successful uh very well made movies that like i, I think part of that is these it, random it, yeah. Parts. yeah i mean you know they're pg13 movies i think that's part of it they go to different international locations. So you mentioned James Bond. I mean, I think it's a similar appeal. But, um, and Tom Cruise, it's, I mean, geez, I mean, by the time this one came out, this was after he did uh, the appearance on Oprah where he was jumping on the couch. Oh, and, yeah. Do, you know, and he was making the, not that the Scientology stuff with him was new, but he was making that a lot more, um, being more outspoken about it and there's a lot of um in some ways unintentionally unintentionally funny uh interviews around this time yeah so searching on youtube for it yeah between part two and three you've got vanilla sky minority report collateral the last samurai um so you have some good and some bad stuff uh i think the yes. like they're actually you're saying like someone like you know this is someone's passion project i think this is tom cruise's like show at this point i yes. think like well he was um, always a producer from day one yep. he wanted to, mm, to yeah. have his own 
franchise before that was um, fashionable. And uh, Mission Impossible is something that ran for a long time, was on TV twice, right? You had the original version, and then it had a reboot in the um, late 80s. That last The reboot lasted only like two two seasons or so, and it was a soft reboot. And weirdly, some of that was during a writer's strike, and so they just used old scripts from the original show. Naturally, right. (laughs) And changed some of the character names. I think that that's... If you're stuck in that bind and you have to come out with stuff, that's that's very uh, clever. So when this came out, 2006, do um, you want to guess where this landed in domestic box office? I'm going to say... Okay, say five. five. Thrasher said five. I'm going to say seven. Twelve. Shit, I always think these are going to be higher than they are. Well, I mean, internationally, this did. I do Daddy Loves His Box Office, but yep. this made slightly <laughs> under $400 million worldwide uh, off a budget of, let's say, 185 Not count, It's not counting marketing, but whatever. So, I mean, you know, expensive movie to make. Um, but in the U.S., this only made $134 million, and uh, it was at number 12. Damn. Below it at 13, Borat. Above it at 11, an Adam Sandler film, Click. Oh, jeez. And, huh. and, and the top three movies Not that's... based on the graphic novel by Milo Minara. Don't make no, that mistake. Not, not Milo Minara. Um, although that'd be cool to see one day if they did a, <laughs> do that. There, actually, it does exist. It does exist. <laughs> what? Really? Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, you got to do some digging, but that film was made. Got it. Uh, <laughs> But the top three movies of two thousand six. Yes. Oh, you see everything. That reminds me of the extras. I saw everything. No, but um, <laughs> so I mean, the top three movies of two thousand six were number three, uh, X Men: The Last Stand. Oh, of course, yeah. The third X Men live action film for those counting. Uh, number two, Cars, which I despise. That movie. Uh, and number one, Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Man's Chest. Oh so, yeah. Okay. So I'm the only person that is has a fondness for cars. It seems. I, I guess so. I don't like cars in real life or as cartoons. <laughs> and the marketing <laughs> that for that fair. was so in your face, and it seemed. I mean, that movie was super, super successful, as was the merchandising. But I, I what do you like about cars? In all honesty, I just I. I personally am a fan of the designs, and I think that's that's largely because I'm I'm a fan of a lot of like classic Americana. I like all the throwback architecture and all the little things they need to do to make to make a to make buildings designed for people work for cars. Uh, I think the cast is great. I I find the story very pleasant. Like it's nothing groundbreaking, but I I just overall find it to be a very pleasant movie. A friend of mine at the time, you know, I was trying to talk to her about I didn't like the movie. I couldn't cut my finger on it. And she cut me off. And I think her and I were on the same wavelength. She's like, well, the main car, Lightning McQueen, is an asshole. And I'm like, yes, that's why I don't like the movie. Yeah, but he learns not to be an asshole. Eh, kind of. <laughs> that's his art. No, I can still see the asshole breaching through the um, aw shucks veneer and the corn pone. Uh, <laughs> Town of Paul well, he still Newman has his smirk, definitely. Yeah, well, Owen Wilson has to have his smirk. Smirk. Jesus. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a car? Wow, I'm a car. Oh, oh, wait. Hold on a second. I'm a car? 
I, th- I think the only thing about the Cars movies I sort of like is the theory that it's in a weird post-apocalyptic future where they don't need <laughs> men to survive and there's no, what do they use to fuel themselves? And like, so he's sort of like, absurdist. that's like insane because like I've known about these movies for so many years and this is the first time I've heard this, like that part of the story. It's not well, part it's of the well, story. It's not, in, in, it, it's not in the movies. It's just part of this <laughs> insufferable fan wankery that, that wants oh, to justify what is just meant to be whimsical fan, like fantasy. It's, it's a movie about cars. That's it. That's you it. don't. There doesn't need to be an explanation, but the internet demands an explanation. Right. It's like the yes. Harry Potter thing that, like, he he's. It's all just a fantasy because he's like such a depressed orphan child or whatever. I've never heard that, but I kind of like that one too. I think yeah. that one seems slightly. Uh, you could do like a requiem for a dream kind of movie with that concept, but anyhow. Or Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> oh, I, I should see that again. That's a good one. Jacob's Ladder, Dreamscape, uh, Altered States. Oh, I got a I so something about you mentioned the writing. So this was yes. uh, written by Alex Kurtzman, Roberto Orchi, and J.J. Abrams. And I don't know whether they outright collaborated or they each just got a pass on the script. It can sometimes be difficult to tell. And J.J. Abrams went on to direct. And this is J.J. Abrams coming off of the overwhelming success of Alias. And I'm not sure had Lost started at this point. I think so. Let me look this up. Wow. Oh, Law started in 2004. So yeah, so J.J. Yeah. Abrams is now a hit maker. So of course, you know, he gets he gets attached uh, to the movies. And again, not knowing whether they truly collaborated or they each got a pass. One thing that struck me watching this movie. So you know, 2006, the Iraq War, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have been going on on for a while uh it's a post 9-11 world and we talked about how the previous two movies were very much pre 9-11 thrillers so this movie this feels like the script was written before 9-11 and then had one really brief bit of dialogue added towards the end to make it feel like a movie that came out in 2006 yeah i'm glad you said that so uh, Kurtzman and Orchi worked with Abrams before as as writers on, I mean, Lost, as you mentioned before that, Alias. But Mission Impossible 3 is J.J. Abrams' theatrical debut as a director, even though he uh, wrote, was a, a screenwriter on um, films uh, before then, including um, Gone Fishing, Jesus, with Joe Pesci oh, and yeah. Danny Glover. <laughs> And uh, regarding Henry with Harrison Ford, you know, Forever uh, Young, uh, you know, I mean, some so some some big uh, shows in there. But you have um, originally David Fincher was going to direct. I think that would have been really cool. But David Fincher is um, drops out of stuff here and there because he's pretty. He, I think he, he'd rather do his own stuff. Right. Instead of sliding himself into a franchise, although he started with Alien 3. But, you know, that was not a great experience. Uh, Joe Carnahan got really close to doing this in the script. Um, from what I can gather, it was going to be kind of like a Timothy McVeigh kind of story with Kenneth Branagh as the bad guy. Oh, interesting. I think would have been a pretty um, intriguing okay. sort of story. But for whatever reason, him and Tom Cruise didn't see eye to eye, or maybe it was a studio thing, not really sure. And so when we got J.J. Abrams, uh, Tom Cruise was a big fan of his show Alias. But... Um, because he Abrams was on Alias and Lost, it made it tough to find an open time in his schedule to do this. So that's part of why this this uh, this took so long. And kind of shuffling through different directors isn't that uncommon, especially for these big budget uh, studio tent poles. 
Yeah, this is um, it's interesting because like John Woo is like the action guy, right? Yeah. But like his style of action, like the romantic gunplay, I think just doesn't work nowadays. Again, like another just the shifting cultural, you know, fucking mores or whatever you want to call it. Um, and you just you kind of need this like jacked up energy of like a kind of director that's really really like cut their teeth like proven themselves over and over in television and and in screenwriting and everything and then like what happens is that i think with tom cruise producing is that i want someone who knows their way around a camera can make an action scene can make stuff thrilling but like i don't want an artiste i don't want an auteur so what do you do you get you you get jj abrams which is like kind of perfect for this movie you know and jj abrams uh, looking at his um, the, the features and stuff he's directed, quite a lot of stuff that's in in franchises, right? He did two of the Star Trek movies in those reboots. He did two of the newer Star Wars movies. He, he's good. At Super Eight is trying to do a Spielberg thing. Like he, yeah. he's he's good at. Um, I was gonna say aping. That's a little rude. Mimicking styles. And yet that also makes you wonder, what is the J.J. Abrams style if what a lot of what he's doing is homages to stuff he liked as a kid? Yeah, when it's you're, funny. When you're talking he's about like, his movies. He seems kind of like untouchable in terms of like, uh, like, like creative and blockbuster fare, you know, like the artist and the business person of filmmaking, you know. Right. And I mean, the, the features he did were all very um, successful and, and stuff, and he still does uh tv things as well i mean the his first tv thing was felicity and he also composed a theme song for felicity which i think is a fun bit of trivia but um but yeah so oh fringe that's right that was a good show i like that it's like you you shoot spielberg and like jerry brockheimer and michael bay through like a a spectrum and like jj abrams and joss whedon fallout yes and i mean jj abrams and joss whedon that's a pretty good comparison actually um but Abrams and, and Whedon as well uh, are not like the super Michael Bay shake the camera kind of thing. They're a bit more um, traditionalist in their uh, editing and, and the sort of shot structure thing. At the same time, it is a modern movie, so of course the editing is more aggressive. And I mean, when they did the marketing for Mission Impossible 3, which was a lot... They they had something that I think is very cheesy where they had J.J. Abrams with the editors looking like he's the one that's painting out the blood from the scenes to secure a PG-13 rating, <laughs> trying to make it seem like J.J. Abrams can do everything, which I mean, right. he can do an actual, he's super talented. He can do a lot, but yeah, it's kind totally. of like, it's one thing if it's Robert Rodriguez doing that on like movies that don't cost anything, but <laughs> when it's <laughs> a movie that's like a six figure budget th- or seven whatever nine figure i can't count thing it's like get off it yeah like we we don't need the help the, the, this is going to be okay you know <laughs> like we don't need any extra um any extra laurels i think mission Impossible three is going to mm-hmm. be all right but they do have a lot of writing on this and like when this came out too like again like you were saying earlier matt like this wasn't the time of like extended universes they were just starting to kind of crop up and um this is at a time when, like, you know, Roman numeral three was like, okay, enough already, right? Um, yeah, it, yeah. This right. is like the movie that could make or break the franchise, and it, as you can see, it obviously made it. That's really a good point. You, um, 
And also, originally in Simon Pegg's part, they cast Ricky Gervais, but then he couldn't do it because of delays of when the shooting actually started. We oh, all know that too much a of a smart ass. Energy. I like Ricky Gervais a good bit, but also it's like, um, yeah, it, I don't know if Tom Cruise would have let him be as smart ass as he usually that, is because that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, because yeah, Simon would have definitely gone off script. Because Simon Pegg ha- has kind of a warmth to him. I mean, he does tend to steal scenes, but like, there's something. Simon Pegg. Well, there's a like... humanity to it. it yes, Simon yeah. Pegg. I think would be. <clears throat> you could hang out with and not feel like you're sort of fighting with him the whole time. Yeah, he he seems like an agreeable <laughs> dude. Ricky Gervais likes to stir stuff up a bit more. Um, for better or for worse, I, I like them both for different reasons. But I mean, yeah. Also, originally. Uh, the um, in the Joe Carnahan version, it was gonna have um, Carrie Ann Moss and Scarlett Johansson, right? So I mean, very different sort of. And in this, we have you know like kind of lesser known people to a degree in the cast: uh, Michelle uh, Monaghan, uh, Jonathan Rhys Meyers, Billy Billy Crudup, Carrie Russell. Not like burns a pretty big name, but you know, I mean, this does seem oh, like well, it's he was not huge coming off the Matrix. Huge coming off the Matrix, uh, yeah. But um, this cast isn't like in your face as much as like Anthony Hopkins. I thought was like a really classy bit of casting for Mission Impossible Two in that small part. the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. I'm David. I'm Jordan. We're a comedy lifestyle podcast diving into the weird and interesting side of Japan. We often share stories about our lives in Japan, you know, and how you can avoid making the same mistakes. So if you want to take advice from two idiots who have been living here far too long, check out the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. Right. Well, and again, it's that thing where it's like, you want actors who are you're not going to have to worry about any of these guys. They're they're popular, they're famous, they're talented, but they're not going to go method and mail a condom to their co-star or anything like that. <clears throat> like, this is a very risk-free cast. Like, the boldest casting right here is Philip Seymour Hoffman because he's, you know, an incredibly talented guy and known more for, like, art house stuff. Um, and, he, and he knocks it out of the park here. I think he's fantastic. Well, with with Fishburne, you know, he's he's so keeping in mind, again, coming off of the Matrix, he's a huge, recognizable, bankable name now. And I remember, I mean, he's so big that obviously he will turn out to be the rogue agency member who turns out to be the mastermind behind everything, because that's just how these movies work. And you're still falling back on, well, we will make the villain a rogue agent. Um, and to their credit, turns out he's not. He is falsely implicated as being the, the sinister mastermind by the real sinister <laughs> mastermind who is still a member of the agency who's going rogue. Exactly. And th- there's a number of things, and there's like a number of things like that. Like, for instance, this movie starts with a really intense scene where it's Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain. He's got uh, Ethan Hunt tied to a chair, and he's got yeah. this woman tied to a chair that Ethan Hunt clearly has a relationship with and he's tort and he's and he's you know terrifying Ethan Hunt like if you don't give me the rabbit's foot I'm going to kill her and then he kills her I'm like well obviously be- like this it's a great high energy way to start the movie and yet 
it deflates a lot of the tension because it immediately gives us a sense of what's going to happen building up to that moment. But then yeah. also, well, knowing what these movies are like, either he really did kill Tom Cruise's love interest, in which case, well, you're just, you know, you're fall, you're falling back on a screenwriting cliche, or it's a fake out because we know they have masks that can make anyone look like anyone else, which is what it turns out that it's going to be. And so for all the tension it builds, being film literate, it kind of undermined itself. Right. It's one of those things where it's like, Hey, watch this. You're not, this isn't some fucking slow motion. John Woo shit. We're fucking for real now. You know, but I like the beginning. They had at least, if they had at least created some ambiguity about whether or not she was dead. Like if we just heard a bang and saw Tom Cruise's reaction, but didn't actually see what happened, that would be different. But unfortunately they show us everything. Well, and sometimes with movies where they kind of start with the scene late in the thing and then it kind of flashes back, my mind is always like, okay, is the scene going to come back now? Is it going to come back now? Like, it can be sort of distracting when you're watching the movie, trying to do the, the calculus of how the, the structure goes. But that it starts Records. with... Record yeah. scratch. I bet you're wondering how I got here. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. But I, I think, you know, you, you have um, the... The beginning with with a uh, two people tied to a chair and the bad guy seems to have the advantage. I like like how simple of a, a a jam that is to put your hero in compared to oh I, I got long wavy hair and I'm climbing cliffs and <laughs> Limp Biscuits playing in the background man like it's such right. like the polar opposite and I think that's a good instinct here. Yeah, it needs to answer for the last movie basically. <laughs> <laughs> And even though you said J.J. Abrams, you know, perhaps isn't as much of a auteur with with the um, such a you know recognizable style as the directors of the first two movies, I like that especially these first three Mission Impossible movies have directors and are so um, different both narratively and uh, stylistically from each other. True. And then with Mission Impossible five through what are we up to seven eight something like that. Um. It's all Chris McQuarrie. Which, which is interesting because it's yeah. like we go from direct. This was like the franchise I was known for having a different director for every entry. And it's kind of like what they did with Twilight, right? Is that like we tried yes, a different, yes. we tried on a different hat every time and it's kind of mixed results. And we kind of like Bill Condon. So fuck it. Let's just finish it with him. <laughs> right. And yeah, good point. So, um, Mission Impossible Three. Um, yeah, S- Simon Pegg, I think, is is a good addition to uh, to the team here. He has a nice kind of light energy. He's kind of sarcastic sometimes, but not overly so. Where it's sort of annoying, like in a um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer way well, or something. Uh, where well, it machines. seems more it seems more sort of like organic and and yeah more characterful because like the like the big moment is you know he, he's introduced early on just kind of like just kind of you know just delivering some colorful dialogue to help set the stage for what's going to happen later and to also set up a different a climax that this movie doesn't have and i keep wondering well is this clever or is this just annoying and wasting time where he sort of postulates a whole apocalyptic scenario which has no bearing on the rest of the movie um but then when he comes and he disappears from the movie and he comes back later long after uh, ethan hunt has himself gone rogue to save his wife and also go after the real rogue agents and he 
and he calls Simon Pegg up and like Simon Pegg is getting more and more flustered, but he does help Ethan out by tracing a phone call. And I love the way it just sort of slowly dawns on him. And then he just vocalizes, oh, no. Oh, no, I've just helped an enemy of the state. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. (laughs) But, like, it doesn't seem like a joke line. Like, it seems like something that has actually just occurred to the character. Yeah. And um, this is one of those things where this is, like, such a high-energy film. And I think it comes very close to, like, beating you over the head with how much action and how much entertainment and how much shit they can blow up. And yet it doesn't. And uh, oh, that's how I felt is that like it's a move. One of the, these movies are always outdoing themselves, you know, is that like, OK, we're going to open with this gritty chick getting shot in the face. Oh, now we're getting Ethan's life. He's a real fucking dude. And then, oh, we're going to break into this weird Vatican place and do the shape shifty thing. And just like in and again, relating to the film answering for itself is that we get explanations for like how the masks work and how you could emulate the voice and stuff like that. So they're playing this one very smart. This is a very well thought out film, almost like the mission itself. Ha 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 ha. But um, it's a, uh, it's taking all the stuff that people liked from the first two films and then just cranking it up to 11 a little bit, but uh, also like kind of playing it in the PG 13 safe zone. Well, and yeah, and 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 that is that is good. There is a lot of fun, like spy espionage and thriller stuff happening in this, and particularly the whole bit in Vatican City really is a highlight with all the costume changes and the rigging security cameras and the moving around. And but the thing, so, so something I have to ask because um, Philip Seymour Hoffman he plays this like mysterious arms dealer slash smuggler who's been supplying all this all this. T- technology to all these like crooked regimes and terrorist organizations and you know he's the big bad that they want to go after and he plays it really well but there's a whole bit where like he's at some function in like vatican city and so that's where they're going to intercept him and i have to ask what the hell function is he at what is going on in the vatican that he's at like no cardinal is making a speech no pope is canonizing (laughs) someone it's not an auction and yet it's nothing but sexy women in suits rich guys sexy women in dresses which rich guys in suits sports cars everywhere lots of drinking wine what the hell function is this was were we supposed to take that this was like a meeting of the illuminati or something right does like are there a lot of business firms that are like let's hold our next gala at the vatican city like that or, sounds like a good team place. building exercises. Right, yeah, or product launches or something like that. Yeah, and it um I'm thinking about this film overall. JJ Abrams is pretty good, I think, with, with pacing, and he loves to have characters running all the time while they're talking. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of running. A lot of running. And I'll say uh, that like um I think the reason why they had the function there is because they I, it's probably something as simple as we wanted to film in Italy, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there's so many places in Italy where it might have made, like, there's, like, piazzas and plazas where you could have had this yeah. whatever the hell function it was. I guess that's the thing. I want to know what the function is. I mean, it's yeah. a little bit like Eyes Wide Shut, isn't it? Albeit, like, a sort of toothless. Is it maybe that was sort well, of his Kubrick homage? Well, it's not. Maybe, it's yeah. not in, I mean, I guess it could be a Cooper homage, but it's not like it's an orgy. Like it's see, like no, like but... they're all sitting in seats <laughs> facing in one direction. So I'm guessing there's going to be a speech or a presentation or something, but that never happens. 
yeah, there's not even there's no signage, you know, like welcome consortium of investors or something like that. It's basically a bad guy convention. I guess we'll just call it the bad guy convention. Um, yeah, maybe I think like, it is. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. The tech here, I think, is like probably the most convincing of the film so far. Like, this is like another like example of just like really good hacking. Like, if you need to do some high tech espionage shit, or you just need like a lot of cool gadgets and a pretty good hacker, and you'll be okay. Like, I thought it was pretty nifty when he takes like the picture of the wall and then sticks it in front of the camera. Like, that's pretty effective yeah, that's- and plausible. Oh, so something. So actually, speak, speaking of like the the technologies, the two things that stand out. One, did you notice that in the two thousands, it just became assumed that voice chips were a real thing, and any movie could just get away with, oh yeah, a voice chip. Yeah, right. To, to, yes. I guess, and I guess the apotheosis of that is in the Angelina Jolie Johnny Depp movie, The Tourist, mm. when at the big expository climax of the movie when you know he's being bombarded with all these questions but you don't sound anything like him and he just points to his throat voice chip as <laughs> if that's a real thing and not something in movies and 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 this movie really at least in this movie there's actually a thing they put on their throat but i feel like you've shown ethan hunt has so many skills why can't he just be a gifted mimic i mean after all he mimicked that senator in in the first movie because <laughs> it's mission impossible you gotta have your gadgets you, you got you got to have the false ticking clock of I have to get the villain to read this card so we can synthesize yeah. his. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean it can but, be a bit labored with some of that for sure. But the other tech thing is one of the other things that happens is that is that the initial mission that gets this mission going is that an agent is has been captured by Philip Seymour Hoffman and is being kept in like a warehouse in in Germany and they go they go to rescue her. And part of the rescue mission is they have set up like drone machine guns controlled by these giant red gaming mouses like <laughs> surrounding the facility. And, you know, <laughs> and you've got your you've got your 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 Ving Rames is your awesome hacker, like running his hands on all the trackballs, firing these sniper robot sniper kids and like <laughs> how expensive is this mission? Did you just have those lying around? Yeah, right. I'm sure they had to make a deposit or something. And there's just lots of moments where like, that's a really expensive piece of equipment and you've gone rogue at this point. Where did you get that? Like, like that sports car, that, that orange sports car with the trap doors built into it and the self-destruct. That's cool as hell. But where did they get that? I know. I feel like um, one of the things I always reference John Lacari, but I can't help it because he's just so goddamn good. Is that like if years of like restaurant management and food service has taught me anything is that like when you're at work, expensive shit doesn't get lost easily. I mean, it doesn't matter how long you've been somewhere. You're not going to take the hundred and eighty dollar bottle of wine home. Um, same thing with like, you know, police work and stuff like you want to go undercover. You're not getting a Lamborghini. You're getting a Ford Focus. <laughs> yeah. Or like one of those Mini Coopers. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing with John Lacari things is that like you want to spy on a Romanian delegate? Fine. But we're not going to pay for your fucking, you know, vacant apartment loft space. You're going to have to pay for that out of pocket. Yes. And um, I mean, man, every time Ethan Hunt goes rogue in these movies, which seems like practically every movie he does it with like a huge budget and i think part of it too is tom cruise likes to come off there are often plays characters that are flashy and 
perfect and have no flaws. Yeah, and I, I think kind of the the, the super um, expensive uh, uh, gadgets and cars and stuff are, are are part of that, like leaning into the fantasy element, right? I think that it's there. Although to to these movies' credit, yeah, he's hyper competent on almost a Batman level, but unlike so many other action heroes. He gets hurt in these movies. He gets fucked up. We see yeah. him limp after fight scenes, and that limp persists for a while. Like part of what has kept these movies bearable is that he gets hurt. Like the, he's he's not indestructible. Yeah, it's, um, th- this is the one I think that gives him the most edge because it's like personal stakes. His wife's been kidnapped, and we establish early on that they really like each other, um, and they're really cute together. But yeah, this is like the, for the most part, in most of these films, Ethan Hunt's like an unassailably, like, you know, righteous dude. But he kind of breaks bad a little bit when he hangs the guy up the hangar. But also we establish that he's a bad guy who's pretty bad. And he's, you know, basically professed that he would kill this guy's wife if he doesn't play ball. Um, well, we so we, we need to talk more... about that. Because oh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is amazing and acting circles around everybody. Oh and doing God. so yeah. little so to do terrifying. it. It's such an understated performance. It's amazing. Well, and I mean, even right. Philip Seymour Hoffman, he's an actor like, uh, in, in a way, like Anthony Hopkins, who was in the last movie, where he can just be sitting at a table, glancing at a glass of wine, looking at a clock, and acting circles around everyone. <laughs> and oh, it's like, time. how the fuck does he do that? Like, I think, He has that weight. Like, yes. he's the kind of person that, like, he can sit, be in a room and you can feel his presence, you know? So the line delivery of something like even when you know, over the phone is like, well, I think one of the best lines of the movie when he's like, don't threaten me, just be there in 48 hours. Like, yes, yes. Like, we're not going to do a it. bad guy, good guy. I'm not going to make quips. I'm not I don't have a fucking catchphrase. I'm not going to, like, explain the gadget that I'm going to use to kill you while I'm killing you with a thing. It's just yeah, 48 hours starting now. Goodbye. <laughs> right. It's so perfect. He's so good. Oh, so I guess we got to talk because because this movie has one of the most MacGuffin-y MacGuffins ever because we (laughs) we know Philip Seymour Hoffman is after something codenamed the rabbit's foot. And when they finally get his briefcase in Italy, turns out the briefcase isn't the rabbit's foot. It's full of data that will pinpoint the location of the rabbit's foot. And the rabbit's foot is in some sort of facility in Shanghai and it's some sort of biohazard which gets kicked around a lot to the point where I was kind of disappointed. It never ruptures and we never have right. to deal with it. And it's one of the, it's one of these things. It is a MacGuffin and in classic MacGuffin style, it doesn't matter what the MacGuffin is. It all, the only thing that matters is people want it and will do almost anything to get it. And that's good, except they keep building up the rabbit's foot so much that it feels like a cheat that it never gets used. And we never find out what it is. Yeah. I mean, like, it like a we don't like really really need to know, but it would kind of help because like we don't know if it's a weapon, a gas, a program, um, some strand of Ebola. I don't fucking know. Yeah, um, and it's just like when Simon Pegg does his whole sort of extrapolating an apocalyptic scenario at the beginning. Again, that setting up some. I, I feel like I feel like that whole bit is just a lie to make us fearful of the rabbit's foot, but because the rabbit's foot is never anything within the narrative other than a MacGuffin. 
it, it really comes up as, as disappointing. It's the it's the difference between subverting something in your story and undermining something in your story. And I think the rabbit's foot ends up undermining itself. And I am such a who gives a shit guy to the point where I usually don't care. A MacGuffin's a MacGuffin and we all know what it is. But this is like even for me, who is very quick to turn the other cheek and just say fucking roll with it. Even I'm kind of like, OK, what the fuck, though, really? Like <laughs> it falls out of the briefcase, gets kicked around. Simon Pegg, again, does a little speech about the anti-god or whatever, but he's not even talking about it. It's like he's the audience surrogate being like. What the fuck is it? Oh, I don't know. I always just thought it was the anti-god. That's what I say whenever bad guys hijack shit. And I'm like, okay. It's like the movie is so aware of its MacGuffin-ness that it's telling us not to care. But the whole well, precipitating it, action's about it. So, And that's the J.J. Abrams thing um, he gets kind of knocked for. is the, he, the, he called it the mystery box, right? Where right. there's something that people want is kind of a mystery. It kind of drives everything. I think in, in, in stuff like lost, it, it's sort of uh, obvious about like, Oh, how did we get on this Island? Or it's, um, and it, it's a bit ton in cheek too, where it's, you know, the characters kind of talking about it, but yet in, in this film, you know, it, it is a, a biological hazard of some sort, which wasn't that the, the big kind of, thing in the last film too yes which is also why it kind of is a bit of a letdown yeah right. and i think the last one they like shoot it at one point yes that was dumb <laughs> anyway i don't want to get caught up on that one but good they point, made a big point. mistake in the letterbox description because it says hunt must try to protect his girlfriend while working with his new team to complete the mission <laughs> they got married <laughs> yep they got which, married which you know that was a great scene because like because because like when the movie really gets going after the thrilling opening credit sequence, it's a party to celebrate Ethan Hunt's engagement, and you know we get we get to meet you know we get to meet his wife's family. There's a lot of build up. It gets us to really it, it does succeed in getting me to care about all of these people on an emotional level, although it although like they also establish that Ethan's both of Ethan. Hunt's parents are dead, and we know they were both alive in the first movie, so I can only assume the stress of being arrested for being international drug kingpins and then being released uh, <laughs> while having their farm saved was just too much, and they dropped out of heart attacks immediately after the first movie. <laughs> that, that um, is, yeah, that is strange. Like, oh, go on. I feel like one of his parents should have been there, because it's just, it's just we've cleared out anyone this spy could care about. So now they can do anything. God damn it. Stop doing that. <laughs> well, and the thing is like, if you show someone as Tom Cruise, dad or mom, Tom Cruise always wants to come off as looking as being young, even though he's not anymore. Right. And by, by showing that he has a, a parent, like also who would you cast as Tom Cruise's dad? Just someone with a fun cameo. Maybe some someone who's still alive from the original shows. Yeah. Cast. I don't that know. But, but that with a beard. That does build up because when because Tom Cruise's cover is he's he's his cover is he works for the Virginia Department of Transportation and every now and then he has to leave town to do a special audit somewhere uh, I get presumably in Virginia which I that's where I was born and raised there's very little you would ever need to audit in Virginia that would require you to stay several nights somewhere else <laughs> unless it's I guess unless it's a big government bureaucracy thing so maybe that's part of his cover. Um, cause, cause you can drive just about anywhere in that state pretty easily. Yeah. Well, but, it, it would um, maybe like Virginia parts of that. But, but when he gets his big rogue, when he gets his big mission to go to Germany, you know, he goes to, he, you know, he goes to his life to explain, well, I got to go leave town. 
and uh, but then they decide, well, you know what? Let's just get married here. So they find the the chaplain who does the who works at the chapel in the hospital where his fiance works, and they just flat out get married at the hospital, and then they have their honeymoon in in like the medical storage room. So I hope they didn't spoil any insulin or anything in there. But like that, I I liked that part of the movie. That seemed yeah. very humanizing. And it was smart, too, because when he's looking for her, when she's kidnapped, he knows everyone's name and everyone seems to know and like him. He's like, Linda, Linda, you know, have you seen Julia? And it's like, oh, hi, honey. You know, you get this like very warm kind of like familial vibe, you know, which I think was a good nice touch. So when this movie was coming out, there was something in the news that the um, Wikipedia mentions um, that I think is kind of do you know the South Park connection between Mission Impossible 3? in South Park. Um, no. I know South Park references it once when they used the yeah. Tom Cruise so, breaking kit, but no. So when this movie was uh, coming, like before it was coming out, when all the publicity was happening, Tom Cruise was wanting, was, um, or uh, it was South Park doing uh, repeats, right? Because it was in the summer. And the Matt Stone and Trey Parker, the creator of South Parks, have such control over the show, they dictate what the repeats are. On Comedy Central, oh, wow. and it was set to be the infamous uh, Tom Cruise uh, <laughs> trapped in the closet episode. Oh, the trapped in the closet, yeah. And Tom Cruise uh, allegedly said, "I am not going to do Mission Impossible publicity," and pressured Comedy Central to pull the episode. Also, note uh, Comedy Central is owned by Viacom, who also owns Paramount, who does uh-huh. Mission Impossible, right? Yeah. Um, and Matt Stone and Trey Parker got so pissed off that that happened. They said, you pull that shit again. We're taking all this show to another network. Wow. Because South Park has been the cash cow for Comedy Central since day one. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that channel before and after South Park, it's like night and day. Mm-hmm. Yes. Although you still had, uh, was it um, Penn Jillette doing voiceovers for Comedy yep. Central commercials at that this time? Comedy Central. Yep. Coming yes. up at nine o'clock. Yeah. That'll make you download in your pants. Yeah. The, um, it so I mean that is something I always associate with that movie, and that strikes me as like pretty petty because it's not like okay, I, I I don't know like I guess that episode really got to Tom Cruise, which yeah he's a weird duck, you know yes. like he's a really yes. great he's a great actor right, but he's a movie star. Like, One of the last movie movie stars, because that seems to matter less and less, having right, a exactly. guy where you go to a movie and it's like, I don't know, Robert Redford or, or Paul Newman or something like that, where, you know, they're always going to sort of act the same way. You know what you're going to get? Not, not that Tom Cruise always does that, but mostly he he, he does that, with some exceptions like uh, the Robert Redford film Lion for Lambs or Magnolia. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean... He's not going to play fucking, like, a lonely accountant, you know, uh, with a sad dog or something in, like, a fucking P.T. Anderson film. Or something. Oh, I take that back. He was in a couple P.T. Anderson movies. But, I mean, you, you know what I mean? Like, Tom Cruise to, like, Michael Douglas, maybe, in that he has this image that's pretty consistent in maybe 80% of his movies. Right. Like, uh, Tom Cruise's to action adventure as Michael Douglas's to, like, briefcase guys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just want him in a movie now called victims. Michael Douglas is in Briefcase Guys. Briefcase Guy. I Ever since I was time. a kid, I'd always wanted to be a briefcase guy. 
I straighten my tie. I shake my salt and pepper hair while I'm doing things in front of a mirror. And then I turn around and I say, I'm Michael fucking Douglas. Briefcase guys coming from Pixar. They're a bunch of briefcases, (laughs) but they're actually guys. And on this wonderful adventure, they learn the meaning that the best job of all is being a friend. They're actually all magical as the attache case. It's actually just talking briefcases a la cars. Yes, and and Polly Shore as the handbag. <laughs> oh, far out, man. You can put all kinds of stuff in me. That's my bad, Polly Shore. <laughs> but yeah. I guess all, they're all talking briefcases. Then it cuts to the one that has, like, the code, and it just goes, <laughs> and they're like, ha, ha, that's Chet for you. And then, yeah, it, it would play some pretty, uh, it would play, like, a, a carpet ride, magic carpet ride by Steppenwolf as the trailer right. wraps up. And it shows a montage of the fun action scenes with the briefcases wiggling around. So no, this the, has been pitched a sequel. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the briefcases are men and the purses are women, and that's their little world, right? And, like, handbags are the kids. But God I'm a it. duffel bag. Where's a place in the world for me? The, the, the miser yes. is, like, a suitcase. Like ask the wise suitcase if I maybe the, the wise suitcase and it, the, that suitcase has wheels. Yeah. Like, man, I, I I wish I could be like the suitcase with wheels. You can getting, go wherever he wants. But getting I, your I'm, wheels is like a rite of passage. Have you gotten? <laughs> yes, <yet>? yes. <laughs> and it it turns out maybe Tom Cruise does does a cameo as a a human that leaves behind his important briefcase, and it makes. It hints it could be Ethan Hunt, but it's not for legal reasons. No, yeah, he, no, uh, no, his 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 cameo is he's he's the cat carrier. When your log when your luggage gets lost on an airplane, you actually it's actually code for becoming a human. So he used to be. A <laughs> <laughs> wow. And uh, Barry, is that you? It's the human me, guys. Remember. <laughs> and um, it it ends with. A teaser where the briefcases now have been transformed into humans are all are all going to take a trip. Sadly, it's to a briefcase factory. Horror. <laughs> as they learn how to. Isn't that where brain. briefcases go to be born? Wouldn't that not? Be, wouldn't that be like going to like the hospital to see like new babies or something? Where yes, the, does the briefcase come from? I don't know. <laughs> Which came first, the briefcase or the human, man? You don't tell me where briefcases come from. I'm going to shoot your wife in the fucking head. <laughs> oh, God. And Eugene Levy as the evil CEO of the briefcase factory. Yes. I'm yeah. going to get those briefcases. Handbags, briefcases, tote bags. I don't give a shit. And uh, one of the briefcases is, is sort of long winded. I thought you were a briefcase. Guys. Oh. There's a there's saddlebags played by Sam Elliott. In the in the background, there's a military recruiting poster that's you know I want you, but it's Uncle Samsonite on it. Yeah, it's a it's a yeah. repurposed Army Army footage. It writes itself, quite frankly. Yeah, we might have to patent this one. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you do to movie concepts. You patent them. Yes, exactly. They're, they're Just like a briefcase. <laughs> It's a briefcase and it's a movie. It's brilliant. It can be both of those things. The duffel bag's voice by Queen Latifah. 
<laughs> you open it up and this <laughs> you have you have a tie in uh tie in briefs that are designed to look like briefcases. <laughs> Put your briefcase in your briefcase. <laughs> the messenger bag is like the stoner guy. Boom in <laughs> there's a messenger bag. There's a <laughs> there's a there's a lawyer named Pelicans. We can be the Pelican brief. <laughs> He's in charge of like, you know, he's like the clerk magistrate, you know. One of the briefcases accidentally gets cut with a knife and starts screaming that he's going to die until one of them brings over a piece of tape to patch him up with. (laughs) No, it's one of those travel stickers. They put a travel sticker on it. The piece of tape is voiced by Danny Glover. There's a wise old old steamer trunk who's been all around the world and seen everything. He can be, uh, he can be Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Why don't you want to be a human, Mr. Uh, Mr. Steamer trunk? I'm perfectly fine being a steamer trunk. It's what I want to be. be But you, you go ahead and and take your journey. I I did my journey. You do yours. Sometimes it's not about the journey, but the destination. (laughs) What you'll discover is, when it comes to briefcases, what really matters is what's inside. <laughs> yes. And... There'll be a viral marketing campaign, what's in your briefcase? Well, people to show what's in their various satchels. It would have a promotional cartoon that's a crossover between briefcases and Boss Baby. <laughs> when they'll, the... they'll get Sir yeah. Mix-a-Lot out. They'll get Sir Mixlot out of retirement to record I like big bags and I cannot lie. <laughs> yeah, that would be over the Dad, cover. when will I get my wheels? Damn it, Bobby, you're a briefcase, not a duffel bag. <laughs> you, you already had the so, wheels all along. The real wheels are in the heart. The real the real wheels are right here. What what have we done to our show? <laughs> I, I've been thinking that for the past fifteen years, Thrasher. <laughs> Okay, Mission Impossible 3. God damn it. If you can um, still get us to crack up like this, then we're definitely doing something right. <laughs> we're doing three things wrong, but we're doing something very right. right. Audience, what do you think of the briefcase sketch? Send me an email to sequelcast <laughs> yeah. at gmail.com. Oh, that was a sketch? I thought that was the episode. The sure. I don't know. The second it's like when Monty Python would do one of those sketches that would never end and it would consume all the show <laughs> like yeah. bicycle repairman or yep. mr neutron so mission impossible three yeah i i would say this is it, i appreciate how it's um has philip seymour hoffman i think there, there's some good sequences but something about this feels a little toothless it's trying to get back to basics in some way and doesn't quite hit it I would say sequel no to Mission Impossible 3. Yeah, I, I'm i also going to give it a sequel no. Philip Seymour Hoffman is transcendent. I, I love when we get to see Maggie Q be a spy. And by the way, when she's in Italy, it looks like they just brought the DC Comics character Roulette to life. So let's just build, let's make Maggie Q the villain Roulette in a, in a, in a DC Comics movie. It's about time. Um and you know and the stuff in italy is 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 honestly great like that's the highlight of the movie for me but it's in a movie that that in the end is not all that interesting it probably should be a little harder 
than PG-13. This could have been improved by being closer to R. Um, you know, the I've already talked about a lot of my issues with the storytelling. You don't really need to see this. Also, I must point out, the way the title is abbreviated on the movie's poster, it leads me to believe the title is supposed to be pronounced ME! <laughs> the poster looks like a fake movie. Yes. <laughs> Like just like like something you'd find in like a Chinatown knockoff store, you know, like Tom Cruise is starring in Fire Globe. <laughs> right. Oh, he... And it's not a mountain of heads, I'll give it that, but just that whole like gunmetal aesthetic is just it's flat. It's like someone was like, Mr. Cruise, do you want to see the poster? He's like, Am I on it? Yes. He's like, then I don't give a shit. <laughs> oh hey. I I didn't I forgot to mention I've been to one of the shooting locations for this film. Ooh, which one? So after they've captured Philip Seymour Hoffman when his when his uh, foot soldiers come to rescue him, that was all filmed on the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Uh, that is right by one of the places I used to live in Virginia. I could see it from my my family's house. I've driven that hundreds of times. Like, I know that area inside and out. They made really good use of that space. That's always fun when you find stuff in movies where you're around where you grew up and stuff. Um, oh, the old, and the only thing that, that was different is there's like, there's, you know, that, that girder scaffolding that's there that you see yes. uh, in, in the rescue scene. They built that and put that there. The actual Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel does not have that scaffolding. Aha. Got it. Yeah, that feels like um like another like in they're trying to like outdo the previous movie type thing. It's an intense sequence. It is pretty good though, yeah. Anything any scene with the big bridge, my mind always first goes to true lies. That or um the yeah, Timothy Dalton bomb license to kill. I think they blow shit oh, up that on had a bridge a good, in that one. Yes, that had a good also in Florida that had a good bridge uh, sequence. Um I mean, geez, if you ever go to the Keys in Florida, that's some of the most boring driving in the world. It's super flat. It just goes <laughs> oh, on yeah. forever. It looks like it'll never end. Forever. But, um, and then also people drive like drunken sailors. So you got to watch yourself. It's, um, and yet you can stop at any place and probably get fried alligator. Yeah. And, uh, fried alligator, uh, I enjoy. And, and drive through liquor stores. Yes. Boom. Drive through liquor stores and cocktails the size of your head. And those buckets. And okay, so we nice. allegedly talked about Mission Impossible Three and briefcases for a bit. Oh yes. So, so um, I would uh, I I would give this a sequel. <laughs> yes, I liked it less the second time through watching it in preparation for this episode though, because I think the first time I just got caught up in the slam bang entertainment of it all, yep. and then second time through I'm like, okay, there's a few more holes than I've picked up on the first time through. Um, but there is enough to like and enjoy, even if it's a little flaccid at some parts. But I think Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ving Rhames, and uh, Michelle Monaghan pick up the slack. Cool. Yeah. Um, nice. So let's go on to what you're watching. I watched a new movie that it started out, it didn't seem that great, and it got better as it went along, which is always a nice surprise. This is a movie uh, distributed by Netflix. Starring John Boyega and uh, Jamie Foxx and Tiona Paris. I am talking about They Cloned Tyrone. Oh, Whoa. I've heard that's pretty good. 
It is uh, directed by Joel Taylor, so it's his directorial debut, but he has a background, um, among other things, as a screenwriter. He was one of the writers on Creed Two, one of the writers on Space Jam, A New Legacy, the second uh, Space Jam feature. <clears throat> and it, from the, I, I, we decided to watch it because um, I just like the name, and I, I thought it was going to be an out-and-out -out comedy. And while it is that, it also has sort of more in common with like the Jordan Peele kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, and also a bit like Truman show and, and things like that. So it's, it, it takes a little bit, but what I really like is, is the way it was um, shot and the cinematography is by Ken Sane is it has a heavy grain to it, even though it's set so much so that um, I thought it was set in the eighties, but it's actually set in modern day, but the heavy grain, a lot of stuff shot at night, just the way the the camera is a lot of wide shots really gives it um, a look that makes it stand out. The bad guy in this is played by Kiefer Sutherland doing a not great Southern accent. Uh -huh. um, David Allen Greer is, is here in a brief part as a preacher, which is pretty funny. And yeah, I, I just want to say as little about the plot of the movie as possible, but it's great to see John Boyega as a lead in something. Um, where he really gets to to do you know more of his talents than you might have seen in the uh, the newer Star Wars uh, trilogy. Interesting. Yeah, that that is something I have been meaning to check out. I'll probably give it a shot this coming weekend. And the runtime is one hundred nineteen minutes, so under two hours. That's pretty unusual these days. So I appreciate oh, that as well. I feel I feel terrible for saying like I like the movie because it was short. But there's something to be said for that. Like time is the one thing you can't get back. Yeah, that's yeah. A, in like yeah, yeah, like there's been blockbuster bloat. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind. More, yeah, I wouldn't mind movies being a bit more taut. Also, it's like you know your average runtime's been like 90 minutes for like a century now, and it's worked for so long. There's really you know what I mean. Like you can't just follow that formula, please. Like it does everything broke. have to be two and a half hours long? And there's so many of these movies where it feels like it ends and then it goes on for another 45 minutes. Like, oh, they gotta, <laughs> they, they gotta invade the fortress and yeah, make, make five million things blow up and there's yeah. a ticking clock. Oh, that's something I didn't get a chance to mention. That is the one thing in, in Mission Impossible 3 that, that outright ticked me off. Yes. They do this all these elaborate stunts to get into the facility to get the White Rabbit and Tom Cruise gets into the facility and then there's some business, and then suddenly he's out. We never once see what he had to go through to get the white rabbit, or to get the rabbit's foot while he was in the facility, and that was so deflating. Maybe that was like a budget thing, because they'd already spent a lot developing the Joe Carnahan version, and a lot of those contracts tend to be pay or play, which means they get paid before, even if the movie gets made or not. Um, well, they well the thing is, it's all set in presumably like a, a, a biotech office building, Nothing's cheaper to film in than an office <laughs> building. Yeah, right. I mean, I, but there was I, I, like security yeah. to be to be circumvented, and elevators, and like guards. Presumably, it just it that that was just fuck you movie. I think Zeno cursed them that day on set. Oh, well. So sorry to to take to distract, but like no, that no. that really stuck with me. That's uh, fair enough. Um, Thrasher, what are you even watching? So, and I, I suspect Alex and I are both going to talk about this, uh, but I saw uh, the Barbie movie. Nice. 
And nice. Yeah, we've been meaning to see it. We just couldn't. Feel feel free to talk about it how you like. I sort of okay. loosely know what happens, but um, we just had a lot of stuff pop out, and we we're about to go on vacation, so we just couldn't uh, line our ducks up to um, go get it. But yeah, how did so, you two like the Barbie movie? I've really enjoyed it. I think I think it is a I think it's a it's a very good movie. It was thoroughly entertaining and laugh out loud from beginning to end. It's a very smart script. Greta Gerwig did not phone anything in. Margot Robbie did not phone anything in. No one in this movie is phoning anything in. Uh, And it even succeeds at being critical of a Mattel product. However, this movie is still one big Mattel product. So, like, you you can tell when they're holding back. And yet, there are multiple moments in this movie where I thought, oh, well, well, obviously the executive at Mattel who approved this script stopped reading one page ago because there is some stuff that found its way into this movie. I cannot imagine uh, if Mattel would want in this movie unless they just took, maybe they took a really hands-off approach. Maybe they trusted Greta Gerwig that much. It's, and but this movie has been so overwhelming, overwhelmingly successful. I am confident both Hollywood and Mattel will learn all the wrong lessons, and we're going to get a slew of shitty movies based on toys. We saw that. It is honestly piece, right? a miracle. But Mattel wants to do a Mattel cinematic universe. In our yeah, uh... <laughs> yeah, which makes you want to jump off the nearest bridge. Like, like it's just. In all honesty. It is an outright miracle that this and the Lego movie were as good as they were. Right. Alex, like, how did you like movie, uh, Barbie? I thought it was, um, yeah, I'll pair it a lot of what Thrasher said. I, I really, really adored this film. It was a lot of fun. It hits all of the right notes. And again, like you said, it's critical of its own legacy. And what I like, though, is that it's not like a hot take to say that, like, Barbie reinforces negative gender stereotypes. It's like, duh, we don't need to go there. That's obvious. But it goes at one step further, I think. And it's it doesn't go for the low-hanging fruit. It, it, um, it goes a little bit extra. But what I really admired is how much it channels the energy of, like, French directors like Jacques Demy and Agnès Varda, as well as, like, you know, Gene Kelly musicals and shit like that. I mean, the there are sequences out there that are, like, stand right alongside, you know... Um, some of the great like MGM musicals from the 50s and I think it does so even better than something like La La Land even um, so it gets it's one of those things where it really realizes the potential of not just cinema but just like what you can do with the with you know talent visual effects uh, acting music it, it gets it incorporates a little bit of everything I think in, in equal doses and I think it does it quite fucking well and I got to say, like, it's it's PG-13, which is not what you would expect. It earns that PG-13 oh, yeah. rating. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, it's not like they made a, you know, it's like when, um, uh, what the fuck is the movie's called, movie called, um, the, 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 the Shrek, where they're like, oh, we're going to throw in some jokes for the adults. <laughs> like, this is just a mature movie about a toy, but is going in, it's, you know, and it's not trying, it's not like overly clever or trying to like be better than what it is. And I think that's like the genius of it is that it's Barbie is so stoked on being a Barbie movie and yet is critical and intelligent about it as well. Well, I think, I think what it does, and, and this is something that worked with the Lego movie too, is that the, the Greta Gerwig and the, the film itself understands 
why people still play with these dolls. Uh, even like even as they've been, what are they getting? It's like getting close to like eighty years. The product line's been around. Yeah, that's fucking nuts, right? And, yeah, like it's yeah. it's like there there's a reason why this sticks around beyond just like name brand recognition, and I and I think the film understands that, and I think that's I think that's really what the film at its core is reckoning with, the fact that, Barbie as an as an icon simultaneously reinforces a lot of reductive gender stereotypes while also being the most aspirational toy on American toy shelves. It's interesting. You said that I, um, I was looking up some, some interviews and stuff and I mean, they've been trying to get this made for a while and originally they were going to get, um, it was going to be, um, you know, uh, co-written and starring, uh, Amy Schumer and Barbie was going to be a scientist. And well, the Amy Schumer version, I actually followed that because, like, a- a- Amy Schumer's version, I think, was going to be intended to be a lot more postmodern. And based on like some interviews back when that version of the film was in development, the premise was Barbie was a real person who couldn't settle on a career. So it was about one woman who was famous for literally being a veterinarian one year, a school teacher another year, an astronaut the next year, a brain surgeon the year after that, a spokesmodel the year after that. And it was and it was sort of like her trying to find an actual set identity. I don't know what that movie would have been like. I still kind of I still think I would have liked to have seen that, but I'm happy with the movie we got because there's a lot of acid in it, which I found very delightful. <laughs> yeah, and um but it, I think the thing in the interview with her that sort of struck to me is after they, I don't know if it was a version of the script or maybe if they were just trying to do an outline or a beat sheet trying to figure out, you know, where the story was going. The feedback she got from um, the executives were like, oh, oh, we love it. And they sent her like a, a Gucci handbag. And she was like, a handbag, an expensive handbag is the least last thing. Fashion is the last thing I'm interested in. Maybe I'm the wrong girl for this project. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, but she said she liked the new movie, of course, and um, and uh, she felt what was the joke she said that was funny? She thinks she should have been cast in um, Oppenheimer as Oppenheimer's wife because of the <laughs> stuff with the sex scene going on in the news. So that's um, funny. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, yeah, undoubtedly uh, an interview. But congratulations to um, writer and director Greta Gerwig. She got a big, she has a big um, thing with uh, Netflix coming. Netflix has the right to the Narnia stuff. And so, wait, let me make sure it's Netflix. It's either Netflix or Amazon. It is Netflix. And so Greta Gerwig is uh, doing uh, two of the Narnia movies. Oh, cool. As they kick that off. And um, I thought the ones they made before. I don't know anything about that series. Um. You know, I liked them as a kid. There's heavy Christian overtones. Yeah. Uh, but I, it's, I don't. It's all allegory. It, well, yes, allegory. I mean, it, it works whether you're like, oh, the lion is Jesus or not. Um, right. Which is appealing. Um, and yeah, whether they start with, what is it, the magician's uh, closet or what? There's the one that's the magician's prequel. Magician's nephew. Thank you. No, magician's closet. It's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Yeah, Magician's Nephew, you know, maybe they'll start with that or maybe they'll just do Narnia or whatever. But, like, I thought the one in, what was that, early 2000s was was pretty good. 
right? Well, yeah. That that particular like film franchise went on for a while. They just got further and further spaced out and were released with little fanfare. Yeah, they were. They did. Uh, I think three of them. No, yeah, I think they got up to five. No, no, they didn't do. Maybe the old BBC ones did, but I think they just did. I don't think they got no, up to Silver Chair. Did they get up to Dawn Treader? Well, Dawn Treader's three. Um, I mean, they certainly wanted to do all seven, right? Because that's when the Lord of the Rings stuff was going on. But, uh, but yeah, for whatever reason. So yeah, I mean, I think it'll be cool to see how you know Amazon has the Lord of the Rings stuff they're doing, and uh, uh, you know Netflix has. Narnia, so it'd be cool to see what she does with that. And they were sort of teasing her, like, oh, if you do a sequel to Barbie, um, I, I guess there's a Sylvester Stallone reference in the... <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> ...the Barbie movie. And, she, and, she, and they sort of go in a Sylvester Stallone jag. She's like, I love Stallone movies. I think Stallone should be in Barbie, too. And oh, weirder things have happened. Like, that could be... That would definitely uh, get me in the door pretty damn quick to see a Barbie sequel. So we'll hey, see. Yo, Barbie, let's go party. No, 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 Ken, the way you have to be a man is to be a man. What does that mean? You know, to be a man. That's a terrible hey, Stallone impression. Hey, he gets it. You just be a, be a man, you know? Yeah, we must be swift as a coursing river, you know, with all the force of a great typhoon. You know, strength of the raging fire. Yes, Mysterious yes, as the dark side of the moon. Ray Liotta doing some cocaine with him, you know? Hey. <laughs> oh, did I talk about last week about Cocaine Bear? I don't no. know. Oh, I, we saw that and it wasn't that good. It, it was oh. like, it, it should have just stayed, <laughs> yeah. it should have just stayed like a um, funnier die trailer or something. I, like, I know, it, but Ray Liotta was in it. it. Was one of his last movies, and oh, shit. It, it it has some funny stuff in that. I think you know uh, one of the leads is O'Shea Jackson Jr., who is Ice Cube's son, and he's quite good. Um, it it's just yeah, it just feels like as uh, Charles Dickens said, and uh, butter scraped over too much bread. Yeah, is it? Is it? Does it? Know, is it stupid? Or is it trying to be stupid? I'm not yes. sure. Yes, I mean it's the thing where I'd rather see a documentary about it, right? And, I, and certainly, I think the poster and the marketing for that, and just the title of it, is um, pretty compelling. I mean, there's already what cocaine shark, I think, or heroin shark, like there's all right. I'm sure that's all. Yeah, all the kind of you know what it looks stuff. like. It looks like a trailer you would see in like the in like the fake trailers in Grindhouse, you know? Yes. Yeah. No, that's a good comparison, and it's like it might work for a fake trailer, but I, I just don't. It just really didn't quite work for me. And it's not that they did anything in particular wrong, but, and, and the CG for the bear is actually quite good. Um, yeah. It's just, bear takes a lot of cocaine and kills a lot of people. Okay, I got Wait, it. Wait, Elizabeth Banks directed this. Yes. Yeah. What the fuck? All right, that kind of makes me want to watch it, actually. Her, her follow-up to... Is it her to, directorial debut? No, she did the not great Charlie's Angels film. Oh, that's um, right. With uh, Patrick Stewart. Uh, he was not one of the angels. Um, and, oh my God. Oh, Kristen oh. Stewart. Uh, the Kristen Stewart, yeah. I um, can't think of the other cast members. That's what an impression it made on me. Um, yeah, that's one of the last things I saw before COVID was char- that Charlie's Angels and Star Wars 9. 
Lord. Star oh, Wars she did 9. Pitch Perfect 2. Cool. Yes, Pitch Perfect 2 is probably the best out of those uh, movies. Um, i to cover those at some point. Pitch yeah. Perfect 3 is just such... Well, whatever. I'm, it's such shit, but they did film some of it at the Atlanta Aquarium, which is a cool sequence. Oh, I like Anna Kendrick. Have you been to that, Thrasher, the Atlanta Aquarium? No, but we are... Oh, my God, might. really be yeah. checking it out uh after uh, dragon con it's absolutely worth going to give yourself time because it's it's huge i mean to have an aquarium in a in a city that's not near the water is quite funny to me but the one of the founders of home depot dumped like billions into it and at least if you have billions of dollars that you do some of it into a museum is um is nice and uh yeah no it's just super super cool um i would <laughs> try to make half a day of it um, yeah, highly recommend it. I'm sorry, I was just laughing because when you said that owner of Home Depot, I pictured him as like this like Willy Wonka-esque character, you know, with like a giant saw for a staff and like a flannel <laughs> shirt. <laughs> I am the Home Depot. I'm Henry Home Depot. Henry I don't, Home. I have, it's been a little while since I've been to it, but they used to have a not great 3D movie where these fish are talking about the aquarium. It's like sub-Pixar animation and they make a pun about Home Depot and then look at the screen. <laughs> that's um directed by charlie kaufman yeah you could skip that but like there's a really cool like tunnel and you look all around and all the fish are swimming around you and just they, they do a lot with huge panes of glass where you can just admire the kind of the scope of not just the animals but where they're swimming interesting very uh, interesting but yeah do that um, and and when you're at dragon con you should do the atlanta puppetry center that's I would good. love to. I've heard it's great. You haven't been to that either, really? I thought I I I have never had a chance. Like oh. whenever I've passed through the area, my schedule's been too tight. I guess it's always passing through, right? Because he was in Savannah more than typically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, that, but yeah, that's... yeah. If you want to uh, buy, if you want to buy some of my dice ornaments or dice bags or yes, anything yes. else, just look for the A Punch in the Art booth at Dragon Con this year. Very yes, cool. Yeah. And I'll be at a convention myself. Who did a dilly ha cha cha? I'll be at the <laughs> City Comic Con doing a, a live um, panel of Sequel Cast 2 uh, with my friends out here uh, Eric Windsor, Tony Mincent, and Sean Christopher Franson. Cool. And we are going to be talking about some of our favorite Star Wars video games. So um, hopefully Excellent. that. And that'll be, I'll be speaking at September 22nd at 6 p.m. at room uh, D135 to 136. I hate the way they number rooms in that convention center. But anyhow, yeah, um, there's a chance to win free prizes. I can't say the prizes will be good. But um, yeah, I've been doing uh, a version of the podcast at conventions for uh, over a decade, since 2012. Mm-hmm. And um that's been a lot of fun. I think the most I've had show up is uh, 75 people, and it was standing room only in a smaller room. The The fewest I've had was at the very beginning, where I think it was under a dozen, and half of them were my friends. But that's about... <laughs> that's that's how it goes. I mean, like, Thrasher, didn't you try to do a, a sequel cast or some kind of panel at a convention where no one showed up and we released it as like a two minute episode yeah yeah it was it was at scarefest and yeah it was going to be like a a, a roundtable 
discussion of like move of horror movie sequels, but um, no one, I couldn't get anyone to volunteer to be on the panel. And then that didn't matter because absolutely no one showed up for the panel. It was just an empty oh. room. So I just did like a sequel cast version of the infamous red Fox uh, walking off stage <laughs> story. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Alex, maybe that's something you can look into with your films or something is giving yeah. a talk at something because it's a way to get into conventions for free. No but, shit. Yeah. Like, I, I've never been paid to speak at those. I would like to, but um, right. it's pretty easy to pitch to these people. And as long as it's something that's in your schedule, I'm sure you have something local in your area that. I'm sure um, something New York close by ish. Yeah. Massachusetts, New England area. Right. So, anyhow, yeah, that's where I'll be, and you can uh, follow me on Twitter, excuse me, X, God, I hate that name, at M-A-T-W-B-T. Which is still on Twitter.com. You you can well, follow yes, me on Instagram at WT2Art. It's funny that you, you can know, follow you, me. Yeah. Oh, so okay. Oh, uh, you can uh, follow me on Kickstarter.com backslash untitled briefcase project. Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can follow me on the X Twitter. You can follow me at www.twitter.com backslash Crab Nebula 1914. Very good. Next time, we'll be wrapping up our look at the early Mission Impossible films with Mission Impossible 4, the one directed by Brad Bird. What is that one called? Uh, Ghost Man. Ghost Hang Protocol. Ghost Pro? Oh, wow. Ghost Pro? Okay. Yes. It's a crossover it, with the Patrick Swayze film Ghost. Yep, and they <laughs> they climb up the uh, the huge uh, glass building in United Arab Emirates. I'm scared of heights, so that's a pretty um, yeah. That'll be a fun sequence to revisit. But <laughs> but yeah, I think you know doing these Mission Impossible films, I've forgotten how both how different and how similar they are. I know, right? They have to get some extreme sports in there, whether it's, you know, free solo or uh, what's it called? Base jumping. Um, yes. Do you think we'll ever see Vin Diesel come back for a triple X four? I don't know. Yes, but it'll probably be like 10 years from now. It'll be after another failed attempt to reboot the franchise with a different actor. And he'd probably do it contingent on doing another Riddick movie. And they, they'd make it a crossover between all the previous triple X's I just and just see, to be safe. They'd also bring Hunter Hearst Helmsley in as well. I, I want to see Vin Diesel, like walk around a room. Like he's pretending like he's driving a car, saying his name over and over and going vroom, vroom. It's like pretending he's driving a car and going Vin Diesel, vroom, 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 Vin Diesel, vroom, vroom. That would, that would make my day. <laughs> yeah. I fast and the furious. God, there's a lot of those too. Like, I'm so behind, and I've only seen the second one of those, but the um, I guess 10 originally was going to be a trilogy, but then 10 didn't do it as well as they thought, so maybe it'll just be 10 and 10-2, and that's it, or however they number it. Yeah, I, that's a franchise I am very... I don't. I know very little. Um, when it, it stopped looking... Like, it looked like it stopped being about cars, like, three movies into it, so... Then there's, I mean, like, buildings and submarines and fucking rocket launchers and... I mean, the first movie is about them stealing VCRs out of trucks, right? I mean, that shows you. <laughs> so, right. It's and then they go, they go to space in, like, one of them. Uh, Fucking Christ. <laughs>
Are you a fast fan, Thrasher? Not really. Like they 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 all have entertaining moments, but then they also all have a moment that makes me just go, "Oh god damn it." <laughs> For me, it's keeping it going after Paul Walker dies feels kind of icky. Versus family. Yeah. Um, well, like yeah, bring, bring, bringing him back is kind of uh, like it, it, even briefly with CGI to round things out is a little bit ghoulish. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean that also has a sequel, Haunted Mansion, right? There's two of those, I guess. Haunted Mansion's a crossover <laughs> into the uh, Fast series. Eddie Eddie Murphy did that first one. Um, God, this is a weird episode. Okay, so. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, we'll be wrapping up Mission Impossible next. And then after that, whose choice is it to pick what's next? I think is it Alex's, I think. No, no this, this is uh, Alex's. Oh. Oh, then I guess it's you, Matt, because I did yeah. uh, the Batman. You did, Bat- you did Batman. So I will say it for the record here, then. I think what we'll do is a, a shorter series, because it's nice to do these shorter ones. Um,. But mixed into that will be one where it's a catch-up film, so it's a total of three. The catch-up film is going to be Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Okay. So um, we talked about the Indiana Jones films way back, including an episode about the Young Indiana Jones TV series with Mitch Halleck. And he's agreed to come back on uh, over a decade later (laughs) to talk about Indiana Jones 5. And, And Mitch Halleck is the host uh, or co-host of the uh, IndieCast, a, a podcast that's been going on. Uh, it was originally a spinoff of the Force.net's, um, I forget what that Star Wars podcast was, but it, it spun off into its own show, and it's um, they've, they've kept it going for, for all these years, even when there hasn't been uh, that many movies, unfortunately. So it'll be neat to, to have him on and get his point. He actually got to go to the premiere in Hollywood. Oh, cool. For, Indiana Jones five and his um, he was showing off uh, email text messages he was sending back and forth with um, so K Hugh Kwan the actor that plays uh, Short Round mm, yeah yeah so some they they have some fun stories there so um, that that'll be cool but the the movie series we'll be talking about uh, after Mission Impossible is uh, Fletch so there's three of those there's Fletch. Fletch lives and confess Fletch. Oh, and that's been long in coming. I think you've been talking yes. about doing Fletch since the beginning of the sequel cast. That is true. Yes. Ones, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. It'll be fun. Yeah. The new Fletch has a uh, John Hamm and it was released with absolutely no marketing. And um, so hopefully we'll get, they were contracted to write a fourth one and there's over, uh, maybe a dozen of the books, uh, something like that by Gregory McDonald. And the books are quite not more mystery than comedy exactly, but they're not the Chevy Chase stuff either. They're kind of, they're, they're pretty cool. I've read a few of them, but it's, um, a- anyhow. Yeah. I think those would be kind of neat. Bit by bit, Fletch is undercover. As the, um, song goes in the, uh, first one. <laughs> they're, uh, it's a private eye series, right? Yes. Cool. I love that and stuff. He, he's, how do I describe it? He's like sort of a jerk, but I don't know if he quite reaches asshole level. 
Mm. Well, that is very Chevy Chase, so. Yeah, he, he he looks out for himself, but I don't think he's mean. He's self-serving, yeah, okay. but not, do you think that's fair, Thrasher? Yeah, I think so. He's manipulative. Oh, interesting. Well, he, well yeah. he's he's one of those he's he's one of those people. It, it's like the opposite of the Dunning Kruger effect, where he is really good at something, and he knows exactly how good he is at that thing, and that leads to a whole different kind of confidence. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's um. But yeah, that third movie, man, they were trying to. Kevin Smith was trying to do it with Jason Lee. Uh, Chevy Chase was was trying to get it made. Obviously, um, Zach Braff was trying to get it made. Interesting. So a lot of people have is a lot of love for that um, intellectual property. So, we're, oh wow, uh, yeah. Michael Ritchie directed it, the first one, and the second one, I think. Oh wow, yeah, he's a he's a good one. Yes, the second one has Arlie Ermy as a um, uh, televangelist. Oh, sweet. Odd casting. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And there's even animated birds in Fletch Lives. So <laughs> oh, I know that birds. scene. Yes. Okay. Um, this has been another delightfully lengthy episode of SequelCast 2 and Friends. We're part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Check out past episodes at SequelCast2.com. Before we close out the show, we have the sequel scene, goddammit. So why don't you set it uh, up? Yes, and also <laughs> our... Theme song is written and performed by Mark with C. Check him out at markwithac.com. Thank you. Okay, so yeah, set the, up this scene. Yeah, the sequel scene. So this is when uh, Declan, Ethan, and Zen are in Shanghai, and uh, Ethan is working out what his plan is to get on the roof of the building that has the rabbit's foot, which I do enjoy. I do like involves like drawing on a wind, uh, mathematical equations on a window to work out like angles and momentum and things. <laughs> I would like to play Declan. Okay, I'll do Zen. Oh, that, does that make me Ethan? Yeah. All right. And and you'll do the parentheticals, Thrasher? Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, Ethan draws a sketch of the buildings on the window. Wait, so you're going to swing? No, 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 no. Uh, you could bounce right off the roof. I could. Even if you make it, you can't just walk out of the lobby. What's your exit? Base jump off the top. Even at 162 feet, you are pushing base jumping limits. What are you going to do? Land in the middle of Shanghai and hope no one notices? That's Muck good. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> never, never think of you. Oh, how impossible. Oh, 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 oh. Woo! <laughs>